0: Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folktales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. At the time of recording, Halloween is nearly upon us, and in honour of the season, I'd like to share with you a prose version of one of my favourite bits of spooky poetry. Now I know I said last time we'd be covering the Mabinogion next, and that's still coming up on the usual release cycle of about every three weeks, but I felt the urge to do something more to mark the season. So, this is really a bonus episode and as such it's considerably shorter than usual, and for the most part is a fateful and straightforward telling of the tale, free of most of the usual tangents and snarkier sides. Now, it's not a Halloween story as such, but it certainly ticks a whole host of associated boxes. In the Ingoldsby legends from which it is taken, it's referred to as the Nurse's Story, but it's more well known as the Hand of Glory. The moor was dark and lonely. Somewhere far off, the bells chimed for midnight. But underneath the gallows tree, nothing could be heard over the roar of the thunder and the howl of the bitter wind. In one instant, a flash of lightning illuminates four figures. Three stand at the foot of the tree. The fourth swings from a branch by the aid of the rope attached around its neck. The execution had been hours before, and there was no reason for good and honest folk to be here at this unholy hour. But reasons for folks not so pure were numerous. The rain poured down unceasingly, but one of those iniquitous fellows climbed the hanging tree nonetheless, while his accomplices grasped the feet of the corpse to steady it. The climber produced his knife reached over to the body and grasped the cold, sodden hand of the recently convicted. He hacked and he cut at the wrist, and with a crunching and a cracking, soon he had severed dead hand from dead body. With a wildness in his eyes, he tore out five locks of hair from the head of the dead man. He shrieked in triumph as he dropped to the ground, clutching his grisly and ill-gotten gains. The storm seemed to rage stronger and louder as he held up his trophies to his evil companions. They grinned, and hastily all three made their leave. Behind them another flash of lightning revealed the still swinging body of the executed man, now suffering the further indignity of having just the one hand. Imagine if you will, a stereotypical witch. No, not one of those modern ones. Not some slender green-robed figure in a circle of bright green trees with animals attending to her as though she is some kind of Disney princess. No. Imagine the stereotypical witch of the bad olden days, when outer ugliness signifies darkness which dwells within. The more hideous the visage, the more black and evil the soul. Warts, wrinkles, a hook nose and a crooked back, a black pointy hat, hairs on the chin, red and bleary eyes. All the effects of the natural ageing process displayed as evidence of wickedness and as an object of terror and revulsion. Such was the old hag who lived on Tappington Moor in a mud hovel. Given the great power she was known to possess, it is anyone's guess why she chose such a lowly abode. One can only assume that she particularly liked it. For surely the rewards for a life spent performing witchcraft must be more lucrative than a life spent being a hovel-dwelling peasant. But people rarely ask the question. In her dreadful home, the villains from earlier are gathered around the hag. They watch as she works at her dark task. A strange candle provides her with a blue flickering light by which she works as proper illumination is apparently also beyond her means. The witch has that shrivelled hand on her knee, and those five locks of hair, and she mixes them with grease and with the fat of a murdered cat. And she works the wax mix over the hand, twists a wick onto the end of each of the four fingers and that lifeless thumb. And as she finishes, she lets out a cliched cackle And finally utters the words of the spell. Now open lock to the dead man's knock. Fly bolt and bar and band. Nor move nor swerve. Joint muscle or nerve. At the spell of the dead man's hand. Sleep all who sleep. Wake all who wake. But be as the dead for the dead man's sake. And with these ominous words the curtain drops on the scene. It is night, and all is still and quiet in the many rooms of Tappington Hall. Most of the residents have taken themselves off to sleep many hours ago, and they are enjoying the undisturbed slumber and pleasant dreams of the virtuous. But a light still comes from one high window, and a lamp burns within a room at the top of the house. By its yellow light, an old fellow counts his secret riches. He is as elaborately attired as the most accomplished dandy, with a most impressive wig to cover his bald head, and a flowing gown bedecked with tulips and roses to cover the rest of him. His eyes shine at his hoards of jewels and coins, and he believes himself alone. Little does he know that watching from a closet is a young boy, a poor foot-page, entranced by the sight of the wealth. The boy dare not breathe as he peers through a crack in the boards of the door. How he got there, we do not know, whether it be accident or design, but now he knows he must not make the slightest movement. The man in the chair looks around suddenly, as though startled by a noise. Terror rises in the boy and his heart thuds against his chest. But then he realises the man is looking not at the closet but at the door of the room. And then he too hears the sound. Voices. The creak of the stairs. Our secretive late-night miser rises and with him the pug that has been sat at his feet The small dog sniffs the air with its flat little nose. Man, dog and the concealed footboy stiffen in fear and alarm as they hear voices unknown intoning the words of dark magic. Now open lock to the dead man's knock, fly bolt and bar and band. Nor move nor swerve, joint muscle or nerve at the spell of the dead man's hand. "'Sleep all who sleep, wake all who wake, but be as the dead for the dead man's sake.'" Several minutes earlier, the grand oaken door to Tappington Hall had been pushed wide open, despite its many locks and its great bar. Those black-hearted brigands walked boldly into the porch, their way lit by the burning of the grim and glorious hand they held aloft in front of them. Into the hallway they marched, past the porter who sat snoring against the wall and as the villainous trio swept by his snore froze in his nostrils. On the carpet a mouse was held in position by the power of the hand. Just behind it the cat, caught in the act of the jump. They took that accursed hand up the stairs and towards the old man's room. Knives were produced from undercoats and the dread in the eyes of that well-dressed man was ghastly to behold as the terrible blade was brought down and across his throat. Hugh, the footpage, saw everything through the small crack in the closet door. Indeed, he was unable to look away though whether he was transfixed by the horror of the scene in front of him or by the powerful sorcery of that candled hand is difficult to say. The chink in the door through which he peered was mercifully small, but still he could see the awful sights and hear the awful sounds and had to watch as those merciless robbers took all that they could. That next morning, Tappington Hall was alive with the sounds of shrieks and screams as the gore-drenched body was discovered. Blood was splattered all about, and Hugh the Page was found trying in vain to staunch the awful gash in the old gentleman's neck, using his large powdered wig. But by that point, the man was already very dead. News of the awful murder was carried throughout the county of Kent. The constabulary was involved immediately and the men of the law had little to go on. The only witnesses of the affair not sent to sleep were Little Hugh and the old man's pug, which had been mercifully spared. Methods of policing being somewhat different back then, the constables took the witnesses with them to aid in the chase. In the Crown Inn, Rochester, the murderers were sitting down to enjoy a hearty roast dinner. This feast was to be the first of their rewards for ill deeds, and they smacked their horrible lips with delight, as the landlord's best meal was set down before them. A lovely aroma arose from the roast goose, sage and onion stuffing, the potatoes and apple sauce. But hang on a minute, what's this? Into the public house rushed the page and the pug, who grabbed a man apiece while the constables gathered up the rest. At this, the waiter, clearly tipped off before, emptied the pockets of the startled men's coats, and found that they were stuffed with all manner of rare and valuable golden coins and exotic jewels. And in the way of the British police, throughout all of history, and even before, the constable declares, Come on now, let's be avenue. To which our villains possibly responded, We would have got away with it too if it wasn't for that pesky kid and his dog. As an aside, were you expecting there to be a reason they were all captured so easily? A chase, a tip-off, some slip up with the hand, maybe its cursed magic rebounding on its users. Anything? Well, me too. But no, none of that. Despite the fact that they went to great lengths to commit a perfect crime, our plucky page and his pluckier pug just happened to find the countries most wanted in a pub with no explanation as to how they did that given. Satisfying? It is not. But that's the story. Anyway, back to it. So we return now to where we began. On Tappington Moor on another gloomy day. Thereupon a gallows has been erected, and this time three lifeless figures dangle from it. For the witch, who has also somehow been discovered, the merciful people had other plans. Tying the dead man's hand and the dead cat round her neck, they truss her up tight and take vicious joy in throwing her into the mill pond. There is a moment of bated breath as the crowd watch the witch go into the water. And then a sickening bellow goes up as the witch floats, and with many a whoop and a cheer, the crowd drag her, coughing and spluttering out of the water, onto the shore. The people rush in with murder in their eyes, but before the first of them can strike a blow, a strange black-clad horseman emerges, as if from nowhere, pushes through the throng, and snatches up the hag, swinging her onto the saddle behind him. And with that, he was off. Somehow, none could agree in which direction he went, but though he could not be seen, a noise could most definitely be heard filling the air. The screams and cries of the witch as she was taken on her infernal ride to the place below. Ah! As an afterword, we learn the moral of the story, which is apparently that murder will out, whatever dark and nefarious arts one uses to try and conceal it. My thoughts on this are that it would have been a much stronger moral by providing some sort of causal mechanism, rather than just saying, the dog and the boy found them, and that might make the tale more effective. But hey, this tale really isn't meant to be that effective. Nope, this was just for entertainment only. And because this is the bonus episode, I'm going to keep to very bare bones here, because I could waffle on about the collection this came from for a very long time. That collection is called the Ingoldsby Legends, and it's a gathering together of 19th century magazine publications, supposedly made by one Thomas Ingoldsby of Tappington Manor, who's an entirely fictional character living in an entirely fictional house. They consist of a large number of mostly verses, but occasional bits of prose, that take the form of wildly satirical pastiches on ghost stories, the lives of saints, traditional legends, and scenes from history. It's written in an incredibly long-winded, pompous, and bombastic manner, which drops references to all kinds of famous people from literature, history, and the Bible. Reading it for me involves lots of reaching for the dictionary and encyclopedia, or these days, a lot of googling. It's childishly silly in tone, and yet also grandiose, and it's sometimes completely impenetrable in its language. True Victorian ridiculousness, which was wildly popular in its time. The rhyme scheme is one of its particular delights, going through exhaustive acrobatics that stretch the bounds of credulity, with characters often being named to fit a particular rhyme. Consider the names of the two characters in this little extract from Smuggler Bill. I done, said Exciseman Gill, and he spied, a custom house officer close by his side, on a high-trotting horse with a dun-coloured hide. Devil take me again, quoth Exciseman Gill, if I had but that horse, I'd have smuggler Bill. Hill, fill Grill, and even a porcupine's quill feature later on in the same poem. Now, imaginary listener you may be wondering what precisely all this funny verse has to do with the story you've just heard. Well, though the verse version is excellent, I decided to do a prose version of it to share this slightly ghoulish tale without just doing a straight reading. While the poem Hand of Glory still has funny elements, it's one of the least humorous of the tales, so lends itself better to being turned into a story than some of the others. And most importantly of all, While the story as told here is not a traditional folk tale, it does very much draw on real folk narratives about the Hand of Glory, fleshing them out into a full story. References to Hands of Glory go back to at least the 16th century, and they are pretty much as described in the tale. A severed hand is taken from an executed victim and turned into a candle and has some kind of nefarious magical property, though exactly what that is does vary as does the form of the hand, which sometimes, just to mix things up a bit, is taken from unbaptised children. So, I have given you some very real folklore here, which is told in Britain as well as across the continent, even if this has been transmitted by way of Tappington Moore and Thomas Ingoldsby. Incidentally, the real author of the tales, Richard Harris Barham, was actually an ordained cleric, who just happened to have a lot of time on his hands to compose truly ridiculous poetry however before you all go searching for the ingoldsby legends online or rush out and buy a copy i should give one serious warning a number of the stories do contain a fair amount of casual anti-semitism which while widespread at the time is absolutely unacceptable today so do just be aware of that to move on from that dour note I promise that next episode we will get down to looking at Welsh mythology through the lens of the Mabinogian. In the meantime, I hope you have, or have already had, a great Halloween, and you enjoyed this little episode with its Halloween-appropriate content. Witches, murderers, dark magic, and of course, pugs. And if for some reason you don't think a pug is related to Halloween, then I seriously suggest you Google Pug Halloween costumes right away. I promise it's not a trick, you're really in for a treat. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll join me again soon.